Lord Jesus, this is such an important topic because we know that you love homosexuals. Teach us, Lord, how we can best reach out and minister to serve our fellow men. Open our hearts to your word and to your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I've titled this Someone I Love is Gay because that was the title that first came to my mind and it just seemed right. But it wasn't always that way for me. Um, I remember the first time I ever heard about homosexuality. I was this little kid and I saw something on TV about two people who were getting married that were same sex. And I thought, well, that's kind of peculiar, but I guess if that's what they want, okay. Anyway, but it was never really a topic that interested me. It wasn't important to me until one day when one of my friends sat down and talked with me and he said, you know about me, right? And I said, um... I know almost everything about you, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you know about me? He said, you know I'm gay. And I said, no, I didn't know that. He said, yeah. He said, I've been praying for years for God to take this away from me, but he doesn't. He won't. I don't know why not. At that moment, homosexuality changed for me because I had a face, somebody that I love, that I still love very much. He's like a brother to me. And he's still living a lifestyle that he knows God doesn't want him to live. But we stay in touch, and I know that God is working in his life. I see it. God loves homosexuals. And true Christians, true followers of God, will love them too. I want you to know how important that is. Because there are so many people in the world that don't. And the media paints us as Christians, as these homophobes who hold up signs saying God hates gays and worse. That is not what Christianity is about. And we have to show people that. When my friend told me that, I didn't know what to say to him. And I told him the first thing that came to my mind. I said, if that's your problem, it's my problem too. I have no idea why God has allowed you to have homosexual feelings. I have no idea why he hasn't taken it away from you. But as long as this is your struggle, it will be my struggle, and we will go through this together. We will figure out why this has happened to you and how God can set you free. That's what I told my friend, and that's my commitment still, to understand. So I've researched this tremendously, and I know there are people who see things very passionately on different sides. I've spent lots of time talking with people on both sides of the fence. But I see clearly from research, from science, that what the world tells you is not necessarily true. There's another side to the story. And that's why we need to say something. We need to show that Christians do not have to say God hates gays in order to stand up for truth, to stand up for why the Bible says what it says. Why does it matter? Sooner or later, someone you know and love will need to come out to you. That's the first reason why it needs to matter to you. That's why it mattered to me. This week, as uh, you know, Monday was National Coming Out Day, one of my friends celebrated by coming out to me. I'd never had any idea. He never told me before. This was a different friend. This was, you know, I've had many homosexual friends. I probably have at least 10 homosexual friends along the way here and there. This friend had never told anyone no one in his family knows. He told me this week. Why? Because he knows I'm a safe place. 
He knows I'm a person who will love him and accept him, and together we will work through figuring out what's at the root. We already got a long way in just a short conversation, understanding what was going on in his mind. He shared with me some of the, the things that happened in his childhood, how he longed for love from his father. You know, the keys are turning in the locks. He's going to find his way out. Last year, I had a student here at Southern share with me. She was struggling. She had come here, wonderful girl, passionate to follow God, and spiritual leadership here. On the outside, everything looked perfect, straight A's, everything's great. But her life, her relationship with God had started to fall apart. And as her relationship with God fell apart, she got into what the world calls a codependent relationship with another girl. We call it an idolatrous relationship, according to the Bible. And that idolatrous relationship had become sexual. She came to me because she knew I was a safe place. You need to be a person who is known as a safe place because there are people in your life who you don't know about who need to be able to talk. It's not 10% of the population, as the Kinsey Report says. That was based on studying in prison. You know, How many guys, if you're going to interview a whole bunch of guys in prison, say, how many of you have ever been involved in sexual activity with the same sex in the last few years? Well, that's the only thing that's around, and these are perverted guys but it's not 10% of the population. Maybe it's 2% of the population. Research shows probably one to 3%. But that's also fluctuating because people change. We'll get into that a little bit more. But the thing is, there are people in your life that you need to be able to be there for. The girl who came to me from here at Southern, I was able to counsel with her, spend some time in just a few hours. We untangled what was going on in her heart and her mind, the pain that she had been through in her life and how it had driven her to this. She was able to reconnect with God and she said it was a much deeper relationship with God than she had ever been able to have before because she hadn't been able to allow him into the deep places in her life, these areas that were hurting so much. And through the tears and prayer and journaling and understanding God's love for her in new ways for the first time, she was delivered. That homosexuality is gone for her. That's not just a strange thing that happens to one person in a million. There are three men who are going to be sharing their testimonies this afternoon with, for you to tell you how the Lord delivered them. But there are many more, many, many more. They just don't tell you because who wants to be labeled, right? Nobody wants to have everybody look at you and go, oh, you were gay. Well, we're not going to marry you, right? But there are many people. You need to know what to say when someone comes to you as their safe place. You don't have to say what I said. Wow, I don't know what causes that. I don't know how it happens and why God hasn't delivered you. You can know a little bit more. There are a lot of places you can go to and get much more information than what we're going to be able to share with you this afternoon, and we'll direct you to some of those places. And maybe most of all, you need a heart that is ready to love and accept. You know, it's easy to look like a safe person on the outside, but it's another thing to have an accepting, loving heart. Nevertheless, it's very important. All three of these things are very important. You need to be a safe place. When my friend suddenly told me that he was homosexual, homosexuality had a face for me, someone I loved. And suddenly when I heard jokes about homosexuality, people making little, <laughs> you know, it wasn't so funny anymore because I'm standing side by side with someone who doesn't find it funny at all. Those remarks are stabbing to him, wounding him. They wounded me too. You don't want to be a person who makes those remarks that stab other people, that tell other people, she's not a safe place, he's not a safe place, whoever I tell, whenever I come out, it'll never be that person. You need to be like Jesus, a person who, when the woman caught in adultery was brought to him, she could say to him, wow, no man has condemned me, Lord. 
and know that the one who's standing in front of her, the only one who really had a right to condemn, would never condemn. We want to be that kind of Christians. Number two, it matters and you need to know because the media uses homosexuality as its chisel to attack the veracity of the Bible. Well, the Bible says that homosexual behavior is sinful, but we now know from science that it's inborn. They're born that way, they can't change it, therefore it's fine, right? I love how the media will tell you something long enough and loud enough until you finally believe it, even when there's no scientific basis. Third, the media paints Christianity as full of hate, bigotry, and intolerance toward homosexuals. And four, the media insists that homosexuality cannot be changed. This is why we need to know the facts. This is why it's high time that we talk about these issues. Jeremiah 2.13 brings out this beautiful principle. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. This principle shows that whatever is going on in your life, however painful it may be, you can trace things back to sin. There are two root sins out of which fruit sins grow. First of all, we forsake the fountain of living waters, and secondly, we hew out broken cisterns that can hold no water. That means you don't have to attack billions of different sins in your life. You can attack these two root sins and watch the fruit sins withering up in your life. That doesn't mean you don't have to wrestle. We have to struggle unto blood sometimes, but God sets us free as we attack these two roots, forsaking Him and fleeing to broken cisterns. This is the sin problem, and it's not just a sin problem for homosexuals, it's a sin problem for heterosexuals. You may say, well, I'm not homosexual, never felt that way. It doesn't matter. God has promised to set us free by helping us to hit these two secret sins, sins of the heart. We forsake the fountain of living water. What happens often when people come to Southern? They're on fire. I'm going to learn all that I can. I'm going to make lots of friends. I'm going to stay close to God, all of that. Then they start staying up really late at night. As they start staying up really late at night, they find it's hard to get up in the morning and spend time with God. Even if they try, it just seems like it doesn't go into their dull brain. And then the next thing you know, as they're forsaking the fountain, they're suddenly feeling, you know, I, don't, I know I should be spending more time with God, but... I'm not, but I'm doing okay. Look, everybody around me is doing the same stuff, and we all seem to be about the same. So-and-so seems really spiritual, and they only have, you know, 10 minutes every now and then with God. But as we forsake the fountain, we start fleeing to broken cisterns. And it's a subconscious thing. There's nothing wrong with getting good grades, but there's some, something wrong with getting good grades in order to feel good about yourself. Because God doesn't want you to feel good about yourself because you got good grades. He wants you to know that you are priceless in the light of the cross, regardless of your grades. And because you are priceless in the light of the cross, you will seek excellence. You will do your best, not for your own glory to make you feel good about yourself, but because you want to glorify God, right? So it's very tricky. When we forsake the fountain, we become thirsty. A broken cistern can be anything, but the bottom line is it doesn't satisfy for long. The broken cisterns seem like something that will make us feel so much better, but they dry up. Last session we talked about sex and how it's often a broken cistern that people go to to make them feel better. If I feel attractive, you know, if I wear a new outfit that makes me feel really good, I walk out confident today, right? Somebody that I like flirts with me, I feel even more confident today. I drop my tray on the cafeteria floor, my confidence evaporates, right? God doesn't want us to be trapped in this kind of life. We flee to the broken cisterns because we have forsaken the fountain of living water. 
And as we go back and drink deeply from the fountain of living water, we're no longer desperate to find people's affirmation or things that make us feel good about ourselves. We're all like sponges, thirsty. We want someone to satisfy our hearts. We can't break out of that natural cycle. A homosexual, a heterosexual, it's all the same thing. We need the fountain of living water. Otherwise, we're like a, dry, a person out in a dry desert. We can see the oasis off in the distance. We know I need to connect with God, but while I'm here, I know I can just dig down in the sand a little bit. I'll get a drink. Then I can get something there, and it'll give me the strength to go on to God. So we go to food or movies or music. Instead of opening our Bible, we open our cell phone. We find something that makes us feel good right now, and we'll get to God. But the longer we wait, the farther away the oasis seems. This is a classic symptom of having that cycle going on in our lives, right? Because we've forsaken the fountain, we hew out broken cisterns. And the broken cisterns, we cling to desperately. The farther we feel from Christ, the more desperately we cling to the broken cistern. This is what happens with homosexuality. And it's tricky because homosexuality is very powerfully addictive because God has created in us the longing for sex. It's not evil. It's not bad. Any more than your longing for food or water is bad. It's how it's used that makes it into something evil. When you start eating for the purpose of lust, because you want to eat this food, even though you know it's not good for you, even though you know you've eaten far more than you should, that's when food becomes a problem, right? The media says that homosexuality is predetermined at birth and is a genetically determined condition, and that homosexuality is unchangeable. Um, they'll say, oh, we now know from science this is the way it is, but that's not what the Bible says. It wouldn't matter if a person was born with a genetic predisposition toward maybe falling into homosexual sin. I'm born with a genetic dis predisposition toward falling into heterosexual sin. Um, you know, some person may fall into all kinds of sin. And, you know, I was born with a bad temper. Does that mean it's okay for me to hit my kids? No. That means that I'm going to need some extra help from God. But I happen to believe that homosexuality ends up being a fruit sin that comes from a root sin because I think that's what the scripture shows. And as we find our nourishment in Christ, it gives us the power to deal with the root sins that lead us to have homosexual tendencies. <clears throat> the media says sexual orientation is determined before birth and that it cannot change. If a person who previously had homosexual feelings begins having heterosexual feelings, they were never truly homosexual. And I've had this person, uh, I, I was talking to a woman who is this champion for where we just have to be compassionate because this is the way God made them and we have to accept it and just encourage them to have um, some you know, monogamous same-sex relationship with some other person, wonderful. I said, that, that sounds really nice, very compassionate, but what about people who change? She says, I've never known any person who is truly a homosexual who changed to become a heterosexual. I'm like, what about the guy that we were just hanging out with this weekend who has told you himself, his testimony, that he is no longer homosexual. He's been married for like 15 years. You know, 20 years ago, he was very actively involved in the homosexual lifestyle and was for 16 years of his life. And even all the way since he was four or five years old, he'd had these powerful homosexual feelings. But he's not truly a homosexual. Can you see what's wrong with that? He's not really a homosexual. Because he was able to change and become a heterosexual, she now says, but he wasn't a homosexual. He was just a heterosexual who had homosexual feelings. Can you see? So the media tells you 
no, homosexuals cannot change, and then they're presented with these thousands upon thousands of people who say, I used to be homosexual, I'm not anymore. They throw them all out the window. Why? Because a true homosexual can never change, right? See what's wrong? When a homosexual changes, their testimony is therefore null and void, and you'll never hear about it on CNN.com. No matter how many times that my friend Mike here will, will send in his testimony, it'll never get published on CNN.com, because that's not what they want to tell everybody. They would get so much negative publicity from that, boycott from here and there. You see, politics is definitely not going to help the case of those who are trying to show that the Bible says homosexual behavior is sin. Is it environmental or is it hereditary? Well, it's very interesting and compelling, I think, that despite the most energetic efforts by thousands of determined scientists in well-funded studies, and believe me, the homosexual lobby has tremendous amounts of money, no solid evidence for a genetic predisposition to homosexuality has been found. None. The studies that have been done, they come up with, well, it's inconclusive, or it seems that there may be something. They'll have one study that they all leap onto, oh, yes, that must prove something. And the next one proves, well, that just happened. It was just a little blip. In fact, Bailey and Pillard's twin studies, these, these guys studied twins who were genetically identical, identical twins, and found, you know, how many of them were both homosexual? Even if they'd been raised in separate homes, you know, were they both homosexual, were they not? One of the studies found that it seemed like they were slightly higher concordance between those who are identical twins. You know, as in, if one was homosexual, the other one was too. But a lot of the time, most of the time, they were not. When they did a second twin study in Australia, it just negated it, said, well, you know what, basically, no, it's not genetic. But what they prove for sure, even though the homosexual lobby will use that and twist that study and say, see, it does show that it's genetic. No, it doesn't, actually. What it does show is that it was certainly not 100% genetic. If, if it were something genetic, if you're born with it, if it's in your DNA, then two people who have the same DNA are both always going to be homosexual. See what I mean? The media doesn't tell you that, though. They'll use Bailey and Pillard's studies to say, well, you know, it seems like they only cite the first one, actually, because that one seemed to show that there was a little more concordance. Um, but the second study found nearly zero homosexual concordance between identical twins. So while there is evidence that there could be some hereditary tendencies, it's definite that there has to be something more than heredity. In other words, you're not born homosexual. Or if you are, not everybody who is homosexual was born homosexual. What does science really say? Dean Hammer, who is the researcher who published the gay gene study, that's a very popular study, because they were trying to find a gene that seemed to say that, you know, this family, you can see homosexuality runs all the way through the family. But he admitted the pedigree failed to produce what we originally hoped to find. We never found a single family in which homosexuality was distributed in the, in the obvious pattern that Mendel observed. In other words, we were very disappointed because we got a lot of money from the homosexual lobby and we could have really made it big if only we'd found what we wanted to find, but we didn't. What have researchers found? Um, Irving Bieber was an American psychoanalyst who spent hundreds and hundreds of hours, maybe thousands of hours, counseling homosexuals. And he wrote, in my long experience, I have not found a single case where in the developing years a father had a kind, affectionate, and constructive relationship with the son who becomes homosexual. This has been an unvarying finding. 
the consistent history of unremitting fear of and hostility to other males throughout childhood has led me to conclude that male homosexuality is basically an adaptation to a disorder of a man's relationship with other men. Now that would really make some people angry to read, and you can be sure that Irving Bieber's studies are extremely unpopular. But um, he, he had compelling evidence. He found many, many times that people could change and did change and for consistent periods of time. It wasn't just the, okay, I can start feeling heterosexual for a while, but then it comes back. He said, the therapeutic results of our study provide reason for an optimistic outlook. Many homosexuals became exclusively heterosexual in psychoanalytic treatment. Although this change may be more easily accomplished by some than others, a heterosexual shift is a possibility for all homosexuals who are strongly motivated to change. Irving Bieber died, I think, in 1991. So it was before the strong homosexuality surge came on the market, if you want to call it that now. But in 1973, there was a tremendous shift because the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, changed their definition of homosexuality so that it was no longer considered a disorder. In other words, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, it's fine. Um, there are plenty of other things that don't make people uncomfortable but that aren't considered to be fine. But that's okay. It doesn't seem to bother the APA because they're not trying to, they're not, not particularly a scientific organization anyway. It's a bunch of people who get together in their club and say, how many vote for this? It's not exactly the way that uh, medical science goes. But anyway, um, what does science really say? No studies prove conclusively that homosexuality is inborn. If such proof existed, it would be given worldwide publicity and the ongoing arguments would end. That's from the book Coming Out of Homosexuality, New Freedom for Men and Women, which is an excellent resource, by the way, if you or someone you know is struggling with same-sex attraction. It has excellent step-by-step um, -step guide for how to break the cycles. Is it unchangeable? We're going to be listening to three men testify to you that it's not unchangeable. But I thought I would read this from Dr. Ruben Fine, the director for the New York Center for Psychoanalytic Training. I have recently had occasion to review the result of psychotherapy with homosexuals and have been surprised by the findings. If the patients were motivated, whatever procedure is adopted, in other words, not even Christian methods, but there were all kinds of methods being used, whatever procedure is adopted, a large percentage will give up their homosexuality. In this connection, public information is of the greatest importance. The misinformation spread by certain circles that homosexuality is untreatable by psychotherapy does incalculable harm to thousands of men and women. I know so many people who are well-meaning in their efforts to say, you know, don't bully homosexuals. Instead, accept all homosexuality as just an alternative way to live. It's fine. It's normal. You don't want to make them feel like their way of living is substandard because you'll drive them to suicide. I personally believe that far more are driven to suicide by those who say homosexuality is genetic, it's unchangeable. If you're born this way, you'll never, ever be able to change. And people who want so desperately to change are told that they cannot. Sex researchers Masters and Johnson, who are not Christians by any stretch of the imagination, report the success rate of 81 gays desiring reorientation after a six-year follow-up to be 71.6%. That's six years. Um, other studies, it may be 30%, it may be 70%, but there's a huge number that do change. 
The major challenge in treating homosexuality from the point of view of the patient's resistance has, of course, been the misconception that the disorder is innate or inborn by Dr. Charles Socarides, attending psychiatrist and professor at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Um, for those who are interested in doing further research, um, I would recommend that you go to NARTH.com. That's the National Association for the Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. They have excellent articles, a tremendous amount of scientific research and the latest um, findings in all kinds of areas. NARTH is not an anti-gay movement. It's not even a religious organization. It's a scientific organization that says people who want to change from being homosexual have a right to know that there are options and they have a right to be able to be helped by caring professionals if that is their desire. If it's not their desire, more power to them. We are not going to try to force anything down their throats. We're just saying, for those who want to change, know that it's not an impossibility. There's also exodusglobalalliance.org, which is a religious organization, and they have a tremendous amount of materials, including many testimonies of people who have left homosexuality and a network of ministries all over America and all over the world. And also sexualidentityinstitute.org. Um, Mark Yarhouse and I can't remember which university is it that they work with anyway, but they have a lot of great information and compassionate approach. If someone comes to you and says, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, don't tell them, oh man, that's terrible, wish you could be helped. You have some resources you can point them to that will help them to deal with whatever it is that they're struggling with. I'm going to have Three of my friends share their testimonies with you now. Don Smith is my friend who's going to come up here first. Go ahead, Don. You know, I just am so proud of my friends who have the courage to stand up here and share. When I was, when I was sharing for the first time that I had been sexually abused, I felt like I was standing up naked in front of a whole audience. It was so tremendously difficult. For months beforehand, I battled every night. Lord, I can't do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, I can't do this. But he... He gave me the strength. But my friends here are going to be able to share with you. And, you know, I would say that they have three different stories. Someone told me once that homosexuality, it's kind of like the journey to homosexuality is like going to California. There are a lot of ways to get to California, and there are a lot of places to be in California. So they, had, they have three different journeys of how they came to be homosexual and how the Lord led them out of that uh, situation. And I'm sure you're going to be blessed by their stories. Hello, how y'all doing? Hey, um, my name is uh, is Don Smith. As you've just heard, I was I was born at an early age at Bradley Memorial Hospital to be near my mama. Um, but uh, I was I was born just up the road here. Um, my parents were going to uh, to college at the time, and they were they were looking. Uh, they, they wanted to have children. Uh, my mother could not have any children, and went before the church and had. Pastor Prey and, and uh, me and five brothers and sisters later, uh, God, God is a great God and He brings about great things for us. And, and you would think that, um, you know, if your parents couldn't have children and God blessed you with children, that the children that He's blessed you with, you would cherish uh, with, uh, with great honor. Uh, but uh, that was not the case. Um, a few years after, after my birth, by the time I was about three or four years old, my father began to uh, sexually molest me. I had a recurring memory 
all of my life of uh, him bathing me. I had no idea what that was all about, but it was a recurring recurring memory. And, and it wasn't until much later that I found out what this was all about. Now, I was raised mostly in New England, very liberal part of the country. Um, but still, it's a very difficult thing to, to be looking, to be facing this particular issue. I, I, I don't know, you know who may be in this room today that may be dealing with this, or you know someone who's dealing with this. This is not an issue that you come to the church and just begin to tell. Um, I just wanted to, uh, <clears throat> I just want to go through a couple of, through a couple of uh, phases that I, that I kind of went through as a child. Um, as, you know, uh, psychologists tell us, uh, counselors will tell us, that uh, when trauma happens, your mind has a way of blocking that, putting it in a different pigeonhole somewhere so that you don't have to deal with it and you can live your life. Most of my life, up until the age of 14, I thought that I was pretty normal. Uh, I rode bikes, I built uh, tree forts, uh, I played with other guys, I uh, sled down hills uh, in, in my toboggan, I, I, you know, I, I had a dog and we you know, would, would run around all over the place. I mean, I thought that I was normal, but I, I wasn't. There was, there was something that had, there had been a boundary broken by my father. And my mother knew about it, but didn't do anything about it. And I, I, I remember as a, as a young kid, three, four years old, um, waking up in the middle of the night screaming uh, because I couldn't open my eyes because I had gone to sleep crying in the sleep, you know, I couldn't open my eyes. And, and, and she would pick me up and bring me into the kitchen and clean the, my eyes, so my eyelids, so that I could see. And, and I would ask her the question, why does he do this to me? And her response is, he, he just wants you to be a clean little boy. She had no idea what I was saying. She had, she had, she had completely blocked it out of, of, of what was happening. I can't tell you whether my brothers or sisters ever talked about this. It's not been until recently that I've even told them what my issue was. But I remember going to, uh, um, in the summertime, being with a friend of mine, and uh, we were doing, this was my first encounter, as a teenager with another guy, and my mother walked in on us. Um, and my, my story was, well, we're just changing into our swim trunks to go to the pool. And she bought that. Um, it's amazing what people will buy when they want to. Uh, my, father, my father's first uh, inclination to talk to me about sex was, came into my room and uh, said, whenever you have sex with a girl, you're forever married to her in God's eyes, so watch it. So in my eyes, then, okay, I can't have sex with a girl, so I guess I can have sex with a guy, because God didn't say anything about that, according to my father. So the mind gets set up. Your, your psyche gets set up for these kinds of things. The boundary had already been broken. The words had been spoken. And you just, you just kind of wonder about stuff. Now, when I <clears throat> turned 17, I, uh, uh, my family moved to uh, South Carolina. I figured, man, I'm out of my old neighborhood. I'm out of my, all, all of these guys that I had been with throughout my teenage years. I'm going to move to, we're moving to South Carolina. Uh, I get a clean start. So I'm, no more, can, can I be blunt? Okay. Uh, no more masturbation. Uh, no more worries uh, about seeing uh, pornographic films because the guys that I were with, you know, that was just a normal thing. 
And uh, I thought, this is, this is awesome. This is great. I, I attended church. I was a Sunday school teacher. But that lasted about a month. I figured, well, maybe if I got a girlfriend, that would help me. I got to get a girlfriend. Yeah, I can, I can do that. I mean, you know, I wasn't that bad looking. So um, I figured, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get me a girlfriend. But, you know, it was just, it was just a thing to do. And the thing that I began to do is, is, is as, I don't know, the girls that I dated anyway, the girls that I was with, they talked about the guys that they were with previously. And I began to, to, uh, to fantasize about, about that. So, I, I mean, nothing, nothing was working for me. I, I just, I, I, I uh, went to uh, college, I went to a Christian college in North Carolina. And I figured, wow, this is the place I can get everything done and accomplished. And right down the street, not a mile away, was a gay bar. So, you know where my radar took me? That's where I went. Um, and I was, I was singing in the, in the chorale. I was traveling with the ministry. I was doing all of these things. But, but there was still a void. I didn't understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Because I didn't know until I'm 40 years old, what had happened to me, what the real truth of what was taking place. I thought that I was just strange and weird and that something must be wrong with me and I've got to pray and I've got to fast and I've got to read the Bible. I, these are the things that I've got to do. I couldn't do anything. Only by the blood of Christ and only by the gospel and only by the revelation of the truth could this, could, could I come to grips with this and then allow the blood of Christ to redeem me completely, to redeem me so that I can see what was happening so that I could follow after him. Amen. Now, I, I, I was 22 years old, met my wife, um, and uh, I saw her. I was playing the piano with church, and she comes into the, into the church, and I'm sitting in the front of the church playing the piano, and she walks in, and I, Lord, there she is. Miss America. I found my cure. I found it. She's the cure. And somehow, someway, between me and my dog praying all night long, she consented to marry me. And uh, at the time, she was, she was dating like football players with hair and everything. It was just simply amazing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I thought that, I, thought that I, I had found my cure. As a matter of fact, the photographer took a picture of us as we we're leaving, uh, you know, the, the, the sanctuary and walking down the aisle. And everybody that's seen this picture says, what is that look on your face? I'll tell you what that look is. Success. I did it. I'm healed. I'm whole. I'm healthy. I was completely deceived. Completely deceived. We took a church, uh, we, we, we went to a church as a youth minister and daycare director in Washington, D.C. That's not a good place to go when you're dealing with this. Um, and I found um, those adult bookstores. I found, I, I, again, I'm just being blunt. I found those little machines where you put quarters in. I just did all of those things. I did all of those things. I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm married. I've got the most beautiful wife in the world. And I'm going to a peep show with 25 cents in my pocket, putting it in the machine. What's the deal? The deal is the blood. It's got to be applied. It's got to be applied. I, I, I went to camp meetings and conferences, and I went up to the front, and I asked the, I asked the ministers, pray for me. I never told them what it was. Can't do that. Because if you did that, no more ministry. 
It's not going to happen. Because this, in most churches, this is the unforgivable sin. It is. And as a matter of fact, I, I am no longer an ordained minister um, in that particular organization because of this. And I'll never be able to be an, or, uh, an ordained minister in that organization because I confess to dealing with this. Um, that's not the way it ought to be. But anyway, there we are. Um, time is progressing. I might, we have three daughters. Uh, God's blessed us with three of the most beautiful daughters. And I thank God for them. They're great, uh, they're great kids. But um, um, the Internet came along. And uh, there was a URL right here in America that, uh, that I use quite frequently. And, and, and I, know, I know that I sound like something that you probably are not. And, and I hope that you're not. But I allowed this thing to take me down a path that uh, almost completely and utterly destroyed me. I should, I should be dead from AIDS. I should be. But I'm not. Thanks be unto God. But I, I went down that road, I went down that path, and, and I went through, um, you know, all kinds of things. But ultimately, I came to a place where I found in counseling and prayer that I was able to come to the realization of who Christ is in my life. And through that, I began to understand that I am the image of God in Christ Jesus. And I have been free from this lifestyle for the past 10 years. Amen. And I am counseling other men and, and, and some, some women, but mostly men, uh, to, to come from this, come out of this. It is possible to find deliverance from this if you will submit yourself to someone who will lead you to the cross, who you feel you'll submit yourself to this. God has the power to do this. I do have my ministry um, on a brochure and I have some newsletters. If you would like to, to get some information, we do have our website and, and I do counseling and that kind of thing. But anyway, I just, that's where I am. Yes. Okay. The, the ministry that my wife and I have founded is called Heart Set Free. Heart Set Free. You can find it on the web at heartsetfree.org. All right. Well, Don, I want to thank you for breaking the ice. It makes it a little easier for me. And uh, for your sake, I wrote it down so I wouldn't be up here an hour and a half. <laughs> my name is Mike, and uh, my story is much different from Don's. Um, and I'm really sorry for what Don went through with his father. And it almost seems that it's exactly polarized for me. Uh, I didn't have a relationship with my father much at all. I want to start off with Exodus 20, verse 5. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. I believe that homosexual, homosexuality is both hereditary and environmental. My experience has been both. Sexual sin on both sides. My mother was molested by her father. Her mother was raped by her stepfather. And my grandmother, my great-grandmother, was actually um, a prostitute during the Depression. And then on my dad's side... Uh, my dad was a philanderer, married four times, usually had an affair before he'd leave, you know, his last wife. And uh, I actually had a, my great-grandfather on his side also died in jail from shooting and killing a man. So we have anger issues also. 
But my dad was macho, Navy for 10 years. He was a cop, a patrolman, a probation officer, a car salesman, a musician. He was critical, absent, and moody. My mom was broken and somewhat self-absorbed. All right, cool. But my mom was broken and somewhat self-absorbed. I had three sisters. And by the time I was 10, I knew that I wasn't like other boys. And I wished that I was a girl. I played with girl things. I preferred the things that girls played with. And boys, to me, were too rough. It was a mystery. I, I kind of rejected that because I also rejected my father as my uh, role model. So my gender stamping was really after the feminine. At school, I was called sissy, fag, queer. And maybe they knew something that I didn't, because at that early age, I didn't know that, that that's what I was. It wasn't a sexual thing for me. But I knew that I was different. My first introduction to pornography was at 10 years old when my dad moved out, and my mom gave me my dad's Playboy magazines. Aww. Puberty brought out the unresolved gender issues with attractions towards sex, towards the sex which for me was the mystery. At 13, masturbation and same-sex attraction became an addiction and plagued me until my 40s. Church didn't have the answers, or maybe they just didn't care. By the time I was 20, I'd already had my first gay encounter in academy, and I went to an elder after I was out of school in the church to, as an attempt to see if there was any redemptions for the th feelings that I was having. I told him that it was about girls, and he said something derogative about women, and I turned my back on the church and God, and felt that the only solution to my confusion was to forget about religion and embrace what the world said to me was normal and my God-given right. 20 years of living the gay lifestyle, surrounded myself with people who were accepting of my identity, which was far too easy, and my family was always nice to my boyfriends. The first one exposed me to things like adult bookstores, bath clubs, group sex, pornography, sadomasochism, going deeper and deeper into a world that embraced me as I was starving for male love and acceptance. Proverbs 27, 7 says, the person who just ate, honey's undesirable, but to the starving, every bitter thing is sweet. I fulfilled the ultimate dream of the gay life. I became a hairdresser and taught aerobics. <laughs> the gym became the ultimate indulgence of my sexual addiction. The internet allowed me to hook up with someone within 15 minutes for an anonymous encounter. I lived in a known gay neighborhood and was within a couple miles of several gay bars. I picked up men in traffic, in stores, at work, and on planes. The more risky the behavior, the more it heightened the fix and fueled the drive. I was always on the hunt and was never faithful in any long-term relationship. Each intoxicating encounter only left the need for more, and I was never satisfied. Genesis 6-5 says, every imaginations of the thoughts of his heart were evil continually. As a successful hairdresser, I thought I was living the American dream. A millionaire boyfriend with big arms, big blue eyes, living the party scene with influential friends that accepted me and embraced me into the culture that the world says is normal. How does God reach someone like me? I had two sisters that had been praying for me for years. Next thing I know, I'm sitting in a church where my ex-brother-in-law is getting remarried to my sister. This was the last thing that I wanted to see and the last place I wanted to be. After he had an affair with my, my sister and left her, they, they're getting remarried the next day. As he came into the water to be baptized, he openly confessed to the church and asked their forgiveness and said that he wanted to make it right with God that day before he made it right to my sister the next. 
from that moment on, I was never the same. Within three months, I was baptized and still in a relationship with my boyfriend. My sister, standing outside the church, asked me the night before my baptism what I was going to do about him, and all I said is, all I know is I'm gay. This is who I am, and all I know is that Jesus loves me. She stopped and supported me and was right beside me as I began my journey with Christ. As I read the Bible, my boyfriend and I spoke to the gay pastor. I believe the Holy Spirit gave me discernment when the pastor gave us her understanding of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, that it was really just the sin of inhospitality. Praise God, I didn't buy it. But I only knew that I was gay from a very young age. In my prayers, I told the Lord that if he wanted me out of that lifestyle, he was going to have to do it himself. I was digging in my heels, and I was hoping that my boyfriend would discover the love of Jesus with me. The Lord takes us at his word, and he removed the boyfriend. It was a very tough couple of months, but Jesus was there for me, and I could feel him as I feared that I would live alone forever and not be able to experience love again. Then why did he give me these feelings if he says that I'm an abomination? And if it's wrong, then how can I change? I tried that, prayed, begged, and nothing ever happened. Then he started to nurture me with friendships in the church who were searching for the same restoration and watched testimonies from others who had left this lifestyle. And as I read Ministry of Healing, it started to jump off the pages that I was meant for something more and beyond anything that I had ever imagined or thought was attainable. First page of Ministry of Healing, it says, it was his mission to bring to men complete restoration. He came to give them health and peace and perfection of character. From him flowed a stream of healing power, and in body and mind and soul, men were made whole. There was no bang in my experience, no wand over my head and bling, you're straight. Each layer had to be addressed. Every wound had to be reopened and cleaned and bandaged and healed, and this took time. Many times I had to confess that I wanted the old ways more than I wanted him. Many times in the midst of dark agony, experiencing the loneliness of my life without a savior, he drew me back and declared me his again. Amen. Searching for authenticity in church, looking for guidance and accepted at the, acceptance at the risk of exposure, finding nothing, or judgment and rejection from the body of members, the few that came forward to me were the oasis in a desert of perfect Christians too fearful to be associated with someone too close to the edge. Dealing with the rejection of my father as my gender role model, establishing healthy intimacy with men in an appropriate way, claiming the merits of Christ and giving him authority over my established patterns of self-abuse and cultivated sexual addiction and attractions. He respected my choices and showed me patience, long-suffering, and kindness. He never pushed. He did it at a pace that I could handle. Over the course of seven years, I had experienced the growth of my relationship with Christ. I got that. I could see myself in heaven with Jesus, but not God the Father. I read as if for the very first time, John 14, 9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And not until then had the fullness of that statement become an introduction to who my real Father was, to his real nature and the character of the God that I thought had all but rejected me and cut me off. As I was in prayer one day, this image came into my head and I want to share it. I was in a tub. I was sick. I was so delirious that I couldn't hold myself up in the water. 
I couldn't respond and I was helpless to break the fever of my sin. On one side was my Savior Jesus and quietly and patiently he was washing my helpless form in that tub. He gently was washing away my sin and dutifully staying right beside me. As the image in my mind opened up, I could see that there was someone on the other side of that tub. As I strained to see who it was, I moved in and saw that it was God my Father holding me up in that water. And for the first time I could see that he was a hands-on Father who had been with me from the beginning. I now knew that I had never really known him except as I knew his Son. After seven years as a Christian, I was finally introduced to the compassion of God. As I tried to bridge the cavern between my own father and me, with little success, a few months after the revelation of God, my dad died of a massive heart attack. But no longer did I need his approval or acceptance, but now I saw him with pity and hoped that he had made the same connection with God too. I could forgive him for what he couldn't give me and was free to experience new feelings in a legitimate way and to live without the vices that had imprisoned me for most of my life. I am truly walking with credibility that I had never known before. John 8:36 says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Amen. In closing, I'd like to quote from uh, another man who left homosexuality, who um, just an incredible witness, but this seems to sum it up. Why am I not a Buddhist? Why am I not a Marxist? Why would I give up my boyfriend? Why would I crucify my flesh? Why would I swim against the tide of popular culture telling me I'm wrong? Why would I walk into church culture that would look at me like a freak from Mars? There is only one answer. My eyes were open to God. He ceased to be theoretical. He was no longer a philosophical point of view. He was real. And though I couldn't touch him tangibly, I could feel him tangibly affect me. Thank you for letting me share. Praise the Lord. Can you hear me? Not to be cute, but uh, Don and Mike, I start, I start getting worried when I see bald heads. Uh, and I see Don and I see Mike, and it makes me nervous. Well, I'm 40 years old now, and my hair's falling out. And so it's like, Lord, am I going to be bald? And my wife says, no, no, no. It's amazing how vain we are, or me anyway. Um, I really have a short testimony. I, I, I was just praying and asking God what he wanted me to share. And really, I felt a sense that I needed to, to, to share the point of my conversion. Um, I have a long testimony. Uh, I have it available if you would like to have it. Um, and I'm so, first of all, I'm so happy to see two people so brave giving their testimonies. Um, I've never met you, uh, but I like to get to know you. Um, first of all, 17 years ago, I surrendered my life to Christ. 17 years ago. 
Um, there's a scripture, and I don't carry a Bible much anymore. I carry my phone with my scriptures. Um, but there's a scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And it says, know, and the Lord used this scripture to really minister to me. He says, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, or abusers of themselves with mankind, homosexuals, nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, nor revilers, extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we all fit in those categories. One, we, uh, liars, uh, drunkards, we all fit. We all can find a category to fit into. And he says, we shall not inherit the kingdom of God if we are living these lifestyles. But the thing that brought me hope was the scripture after that. And it says, and such were some of you. But you are washed and you're sanctified and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm a big word person. Um, I like to see it in the word. I like to stand on the word. Uh, Years ago when I was coming out of the lifestyle. It took a period of about two years to really find a solid foundation of self-discovery. And uh, it took about two years for me to really be secure in my identity with God. Uh, I fell back and forth in sin and out of sin, going to church on the weekends. And the next following weekend, I'd be, I'd have a boyfriend. Um, It was so difficult. Actually, my first boyfriend was a minister and I would sit in church with him while he preached. Um, that didn't last too long. Uh, the elders discovered what was going on and asked me to leave. Um, but it's amazing the calling that's upon all of our lives, the calling of God that is without repentance. And so God knew that there was a purpose for me coming out of homosexuality. It wasn't a lifestyle that was um, looked upon as being horrible. My mother totally accepted the lifestyle. She uh, was more than willing to go to the nightclubs with me. Uh, my dad I never knew until I was 14 years old. And uh, it's been almost 30 years since I've spoken with him. Um, but 17 years of coming out of the lifestyle, two years of really finding that secure uh, foundation of, um, of finding freedom. Free, and people want to know what freedom looks like. Freedom for me is when I'm not consumed on a daily basis with thoughts, desires of homosexuality. When I can actually walk into a room and not lust over a man. Now, whenever I see uh, someone that, may be, that, that would be attractive to me, I would think immediately, this man is made in God's image. And it really takes, puts you in a different focus. Um, instead of lusting, you really realize God's saying, this man is made in my image. Um, so that's a favorite scripture of mine. Um, years ago, I was given several scriptures that I stood on literally. I would write them down and put them in my shoe. Um, go figure, but I was young and I was on fire for the Lord. Uh, the transformation, uh, it was a process. I hear Don and I hear Mike. It was a process of self-discovery, um, exploring the woundedness of your childhood, um, 
I've, uh, I have a ministry, Joseph's Coat Ministries, and we've been, um, I started the ministry because there was no other resource available that I knew of in Chattanooga. So for 15 years, we've been ministering to those struggling with homosexuality. And uh, in saying that, I am touched knowing that there is complete freedom. And um, with the name Joseph's Coat, there was a scripture that touched me. Uh, not having my father in my life, wanting him, desiring him, longing for him all of my life, wondering what's wrong with me, why did he reject me? And taking that and internalizing it, because as a child you don't know how to process that information. And my mother was not emotionally capable of explaining anything. Uh, she struggled with depression and six marriages, and when she wasn't married she had a boyfriend, and she always put them above their, her own kids. So me wondering for so long what, what was wrong with me that my dad rejected me. So come to find out at 14, um, I met him, lived with him for a short period of time. It was a terrible time in my life. He said, he, he told me that I was not his son, that my mother had an affairs and, and that um, he didn't believe I was his child. So after about a year, I decided to go home, to come home. Um, where I immediately went into the gay lifestyle. Um, I had suffered the rejection for the second time from my father, and really, I believe, I trusted God as a child, but I had strayed away from God, and I knew in my heart, I felt in my heart that homosexuality was a sin. But I wasn't able to live that out. I wasn't able to live that out. So I chose to walk into the lifestyle. I stayed there for 12 years. I had no problem having boyfriends. I had a good time. Um, everything was going okay until alcohol and drugs and all those things that I fell into and become addicted to, trying to cover up the pain, medicating, trying to cover up the pain of my childhood and sexual abuse issues that I haven't covered here today, but, but when God called me to f be free, I had no idea what I would be faced with, what that process looked like. But all he said to me was, trust me. If you'll trust me, I will set you free. Amen. And that was the promise that I had. And as I stated, it took a couple of years to get on a firm foundation. Um, I've now been out of the lifestyle for 15 years. Um, I have a lot of friends who have gone back to the lifestyle, unfortunately. Um, I'm so glad to see Nicole teach on gay theology, not gay theology, but the science behind the theories. Um, um, I, I don't do seminars anymore, and I'm so happy to see someone else picking up that mantle and and teaching people because they need to know these um, deceptive, they're deceptive uh, and they're not truths. Um, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud of you for that, uh, finding the courage. It's been free. Uh, I've been free for all those years. I'm now married. 
Uh, it wasn't, oh wow, that's my wife. It was one of those situations where a lady came to volunteer in the ministry. Um, I was at a place in my life that I'd walked in a substantial amount of healing uh, for probably, I think five years before I met my wife. I had no desire to be married. I had no desire to be with a woman. Um, but that last year before I met my wife, I started having these desires. Amen. I started having these desires. They weren't lustful desires. They were desires to have a companion. It was a desire to have children. And it was just that really that last year. And people who I've counseled, they're fearful that how can I be attracted to a woman? Well, that's not the priority. We should prioritize our, our lives by saying, I need to get to know who Jesus Christ is. Amen. I need to get to know who Jesus Christ is and I need to see what my image is in him. Now, don't worry about your future. Don't worry about whether or not God's gonna call you into marriage. Um, and when you don't worry about it, the pressure's off and you can walk in, under, you can walk in the healing path of understanding who you really are in Christ Jesus. That's really what set me free, was understanding that I had an identity. It wasn't in what the world said, but it was in what God said. He says that we are the apple of his eye and that I, my, my identity is in him. Not my father, not my mother, not my gay friends, but my identity was in him. And um, so when I met my wife, she volunteered uh, the attraction was sort of there, uh, but I didn't want to mix business with pleasure. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> what turned into a volunteer relationship turned into dating. We dated, and uh, we only dated for three months, and we got married. After three months, we were in our 30s. We sowed our wild oats. We knew what we wanted, and so we grabbed the opportunity. But we did get married after, th after three months. And uh, I would not advise that. Because <laughs> it's taken probably six years of really a difficult marriage to walk into a place to where God really has us walking as one. So I would always advise, you never know a person till you live with them. And I'm one of those as well. I'm very difficult to live with. So we've been married eight years. We have two children. Um, I have a son, his name's Asher. He was, uh, he's four years old. And I have a daughter, Emma Rose, she's six. And they are the most, they're the jewels in the crown. And God has given me these rewards because he promised that he would bring total res restoration in my life. And I look at my wife and I look at my children and I realize that that is restoration. That is restoration. And um, I wanted to share another scripture with you that really ministered to me. And it was 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And that was really a scripture that I had to hold on to and believe for myself, part of my identity, that God is not judging me for my feelings. He only judges me for my behavior. 
understanding that I have a choice to act out homosexually or heterosexually. I have a choice, and when much is known, much is required. And when you learn more and more about God and what He expects from us, then we're expected to adhere to His perfect will. Yes, I'm finished. Thank you so much. You have all heard three testimonies of three men who chose not to make heterosexuality their goal, but holiness their goal. And I pray that will be the goal for every single one of us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.